Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Charles Delheim, who's a professor of history at Boston University and the author of a recent book called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Charles, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to learn about this story, learn more about you. Um, You mentioned that your book just won a prize uh, for best book at um, the uh, Times Literary Review in London, which is a big honor. And I'm really, you know... As a Jew myself, I always like having guests that have that bring some of the Jewish culture and some of the Jewish history in and spotlight them during the show. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, to be fair, um, it was one of the best books of the year. So I don't want to claim an honor that I didn't have. So, sure, um, I'm ready when you are. What do you want to? What, what should we talk about? Yeah. So let's start with your from the ashes story, right? So, like, what got you interested in this topic? What's the personal connection to it? Well, I think there's a lot of personal connections. Um, probably the most important, though it was not uppermost in my mind at the time, was that um, my father and his family were German Jewish refugees. Uh, they had lived in their town in the Rhineland for a couple of centuries. And in fact, they were the first Jews in the town. And my father came over with his sister in April 1938. Um, Fortunately, most of the family um, was able to emigrate, not everyone, um, tragically, and they ended up in different places, um, in, in Portugal, in London, in Chile, in Argentina, and in my part of the family, luckily, in New York. So the um, anything from the Nazi era has a particular resonance for me. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that by training um, and experience, I study modern European culture and thought, and uh, and I'm particularly interested in how these things relate to politics and society. And the most interesting thing about the story of Nazi stolen art is that it takes us to the bloody crossroads of politics and culture in the 20th century. And it became... Um, a way of looking at much broader subjects. So in the late 1990s, um, early aughts, um, you know, more than five decades after the Second World War, there was a sudden and dramatic resurgence of interest in the fate of Nazi stolen art. And there were many controversial cases which came to light. Um, a museum, a gallery, a well-known or not so well-known private individual um, finds out usually the hard way that he or she has acquired a, um, a notable piece of Nazi stolen art. And then the question is, what are the moral um, rights? What are the legal rights? What do you do with these pictures? And there were some signal victories. Um, 
the most famous of which was the uh, return, the long delayed return of Gustav Klimt's portrait of Adele Bloch Bauer, uh, portrait in 1907, um, which was returned to um, her um, niece, Maria Altman, and purchased by Ronald Lauder and now sits in all its glory in the Neue Gallery um, in New York. Um, but the thing which really got, got me interested in was that I felt at the time was that, you know, this darkly enthralling story of how Nazis and collaborators ransacked Jewish and what everyone was missing or just ignoring was how did these cultural outsiders against all odds come to play so prominent a role in the art world in the first place? both with old masters and especially with modern art. And what does this tell us about the Jews' struggle for cultural integration, uh, the nature of modern society and culture, and of the art world? And that's what got me started on what proved to be a much longer and circuitous journey than I thought it would be at the time. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. So, so can you take us back, I guess, pre-World War II, right, of how Jews were integrating into German society and into modern European society? Sure. It's a, it's a complicated and interesting story. And the emancipation of Jews begins in the early years of the French Revolution. And it unfolds at different um, times and at different rates in different parts of Britain and um, the continent. And one of the major ways in which Jews tried to integrate into their society was through cultural immersion. Um, Stefan Zweig, Viennese um, playwright, biographer, very famous in his own day, who um, died in a suicide pact with his wife in Brazil during the Second World War, noted that it was through cultural participation that the Jews of Vienna really became citizens. So if you keep in mind that many roads were still blocked to Jews. Uh, emancipation ultimately brings um, political and legal equality, but political and legal equality, as we know, don't guarantee respectability. They don't guarantee social acceptance. So the, uh, the passport to European civilization, as the German Jewish poet Heinrich Heine put it in the early 19th century, was conversion to Christianity. Um, but there were many people who did not want to convert. And for these people, especially art, the visual arts, um, um, et cetera, proved to be an invaluable means of integration and also a source of real, you know, of beauty, of pleasure and of enlightenment. Yeah, you know, so I'm going to ask you some questions, I guess, to fill in my own Jewish history. So if it's naive or ignorant, let me know. Um, a little just backstory on my family. So I'm Sephardic Jewish. And my family was, you know, in south of um, Spain and some France and some Italy. And then during the Inquisition, fled over to Morocco. So my family is actually from Morocco and immigrated here um, during my dad's uh, lifetime. He immigrated when he was about seven years old. Um, so and similar to your story, like some of my family had connections in America. That's where I'm from. Some went to Israel. Um, some went to France. But we kind of scattered during that time. Um, so going back to kind of the Jewish integration, something that I always was curious to me is that how Jews could both occupy some of the lower rungs and the upper rungs of society. Because when I've been in Europe, I see these Jewish ghettos, right. That are kind of really in some cases, like kind of walled in segments, right. Of a city or, or walled in neighborhoods. Um, 
And then there's also stories of very prominent Jewish, you know, traders or like I said, art collectors or, you know, people that were involved in government. So how, how do you, I guess, one, is that assumption true? And two, how do you explain that, that split between living in kind of like a ghetto, right? But also being a prominent figure in culture, something so, um, you know, luxurious as, as art. Well, the assumption is basically true. So let me give you an example. Yeah. In, in Vienna in 1860, there were about 1,200 Jews. Um, some of those were very wealthy and influential banking families, but they are the minority, and most Jews were working-class people, and they lived in an area of Vienna called Leopoldstadt, now the subject of a uh, entrancing Tom Stoppard play, and Leopoldstadt had been the ghetto um, but when the walls were knocked down, this didn't mean that most people had the means to go live in the, um, the, the, the more chic or posh sections of the capital, um, the ring straws or the ring street that was being designed. And if you look at Vienna at the turn of the 20th century or before the First World War, there are about 100 to 120,000 Jews, depending on the figures you take. And so you're going to see Jews in a variety of levels of society. And many of the people who attain real cultural eminence, Freud is a good example, start out being so-called Ostjuden, Jews from the East, whose families migrate to Vienna. And through um, education, determination, and um, good fortune, they're able to improve their social position. Uh, Freud, for instance, comes of age in Vienna during the all too brief period of liberal ascendancy. The liberals take power in 1860. They consolidated in 1867 and they become the great champions of Jews and Jewish emancipation and Jews become wedded to the liberals. So they are riding a wave. Um, but at the same time, anti-Semitism, which was a chronic evil of European civilization and um, still something to reckon with, I'm afraid, um, becomes acute. And that's one of the problems these people faced. Uh, they have the liberals hope that, you know, right would conquer might and reason would conquer superstition. And then many of them live to see the rise of mass movements. And Jews are buffeted by all of these things. And yes, there are um, great success stories. Um, maybe half the doctors, half the lawyers in Vienna, um, um, many of the journalists were Jews. Um, but the more integrated they become, the more visible they become, the more vulnerable they become because they become a lightning rod for resentments, for anger on the part of those who feel they have been displaced or hard done by, much as we see today. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we kind of become the, the scapegoat, right? The universal scapegoat of, you know, putting all the negative facets of a culture or society onto and wanting to thrust us out or, you know, eliminate us, right? I mean, with the Second World War and the genocide and all that, it's brutal to see that that's a role that Jews fall into more often than not. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I know you mentioned today, and it was something I was going to say for the second segment, but with the kind of, you know, the Kanye West drama, I don't know if you've been following that and the kind of him endorsing Hitler and this movement of anti-Semitism. Um, what parallels do you see between, uh, you know, then and now? Is that well, a fair comparison to make? 
Well, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, I would say is like, um, if you use a psychological term, it's a spectrum disorder. Um, It, you know, it it can be anything from people who want to keep Jews out of their family, their club, uh, their profession, their neighborhood. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there are people who want to deport Jews and ultimately murder Jews. And um, so anti-Semitism is not a uniform phenomenon. It's not a monolithic phenomenon, not by any means. I think the, the real parallel is that in hard economic times, scapegoating um, becomes a reflex. And what we've seen in this country, for instance, um, there are some parallels. And since we're just talking about Vienna, though it's a story that happens all over Europe, um, um, the Jews who, who struggle to get into the bourgeoisie, the middle classes, the learned professions in the late 19th century are advancing. Um, but, but as industrial capitalism um, takes hold, there are many people who feel displaced. Um, artisans who feel like they're being pushed out by department stores, little shopkeepers, much the same thing. Rural workers ask themselves, what is happening to them? They feel eclipsed. They feel angry. And rather than see this as a result of social economic processes that are not the fault of individuals or seeing it as their own responsibility, um, they blame Jews. And in this regard, they are incited by political leaders, people like Karl Luger, who becomes the head of the Christian Socialist Party and whose politics appeal to people's fears, their anxieties, their instincts, and to try to rile them up and use anger against Jews as a way of consolidating political power. Mm-hmm. What's the parallel with today? Well, we know all over um, New England, mid-Atlantic, and especially in the so-called Rust Belt, we've seen deindustrialization taking place since the 1970s. And many of these well-paying um, jobs that went to the working class, white working class, but also to African-Americans um, have disappeared and people find their communities atrophied. The stores in their, on their main streets are shuttered. Uh, they have to work two or three jo- minimum wage jobs in some cases to make ends meet. And then they are stirred up by politicians of the right who tell them it's not their fault. We love you. You are very special. And um, then you have this replacement theory. You know, as for Kanye West, um, it, it, it's hard to begin to explain him in anything other than pathological terms. And I'm not, yeah. you know, that's not um, within my um, purview. But there's also a shocking lack of self-knowledge there because as an African-American man, he would have been considered subhuman by the Nazis along with Jews and Slavs. Uh, What is he trying to accomplish with these anti-Semitic rants? I don't know that it is purpose-driven or strategic. Um, I don't know enough about it, but the damage is very real. Yeah, I know it's being felt across Jewish communities and, you know, he is diagnosed with bipolar, right? So it's hard to know 
if it's, is this mental illness or is there a plan behind it? But I think it does bring up the anti-Semitism is always there. You know, um, I read this powerful book during the pandemic uh, by Barry Weiss called How to Fight Anti-Semitism. I'm not sure if you read that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and she yeah. speaks about how it's always present. Just like what you said, it's like when a culture is sick and unhealthy, it's kind of like a herpes virus. You know, the anti-Semitism can rise to the forefront. Um, and she was specifically talking about it. What she was inspired to write the book is after the shooting in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, which right. actually area that, that I lived when I went to college. So I was connected to that synagogue and saw some of that um, community in action. And yeah, it, it's scary. You know, I mean, it was something it that... Yeah, being raised as a Reformed Jew, I didn't really consider my Judaism. I wasn't a strong part of the Jewish community. It's something that I, you know, now that I'm looking at having a kid, I'm diving into more. But all of a sudden, being able to contend with these anti-Semitic remarks is is terrifying, you know? Um, something I didn't have to consider growing up in the 90s when it really wasn't as present, or at least I was shielded from it, maybe in some way. I think it probably, you know, as you say, this it, it's something which is, it's there, it's chronic, um, it's part of the atmosphere, um, but then um, there are times that you have violent outbursts when it combines with um, adverse social, economic, and political changes. And, um, you know, it's something that we struggle with. It's something, you know, it's, you know, one of the ills of our own society in terms, you know, with with racism, Islamophobia, their related phenomena, mm-hmm. um, but they also have distinctive aspects to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I want to bring you back to kind of Jews as cultural pillars, because that is something that, you know, seems like was true historically is certainly true now. I think of like some, you know, absolutely legendary things like Seinfeld, for example, right, that have just permeated right. all of culture. Um you said it was a way of Jews seeking safety. Can you say a little bit more about that or seeking belonging, integration? Well, I think, you know, as we saw in the the most poignant and powerful way during the pandemic, the desire for belonging, for affiliation um, is one of our deepest human impulses. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that is peculiar to Jews at all. It's something that is pretty much ever present. The the difference is that as Jews leave behind their own Orthodox communities, which were largely autonomous, but also largely separate from the wider European world, and they venture out into the world of what Ibsen called the compact majority, Um, they face a new set of problems. And the question is, well, how, how, um, how can you belong in relatively homogeneous societies? Um, Jews were by their very nature considered to be different, to be alien and political and legal emancipation, um, has an enormously beneficial effect. But, there's a kind of in-betweenness of the Jews who are on the one hand leaving behind orthodoxy, but on the other hand, do not really find full social acceptance. They are not considered respectable. So the question is, what can they do to become respectable? What can they do to belong? And part of this is a matter of um, learning the language of the majority, um, abandoning Yiddish to a large extent, 
um, abandoning clothes that set them apart, um, developing religious practices that make it easier for them to participate in the workaday world. And all of these things happen in one way or another, um, especially in Western Europe, um, in Central Europe, and then later in the United States. Um, but these people are still very much at the mercy of reactionary forces, of people who want to turn the clock back to an age before industrial capitalism, to an age before um, democracy. And Jews don't fit into this world very easily. Yeah, this is a really fascinating topic. We have to move to our first commercial break. But when we get back, I want to talk more about this assimilation, right? I mean, the word that I have for it that I remember hearing in Sunday school was like crypto Judaism, right? Of kind of this hidden, um, this hidden practice that I think is Jews we do, right? And that we do try to assimilate and try to fit in um, as a way of seeking safety. But we'll talk more about that on the other end of the commercial break. Uh, if you're listening and you're enjoying, hang on there and we'll catch you on the other side. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Charles Delheim, author of Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. And we wrapped up our last segment talking about belonging and how important that was for Jewish culture and how Jews have this ability on a grand scale, really, to like change our practices, to change our dress, to try to really assimilate and integrate while maintaining um, that kind of Jewish spirit and that Jewish community, um, no matter kind of what culture we're a part of. Um, so I want to bring you back to the historical record and back to the book. Are there characters in the book that you could share a little bit of their belonging story about how they integrated into the modern European world? Sure. I mean, this is a this book is a narrative, and um, it's what happens to these people, their rise and fall, their lives and works, which is really what I found most interesting, and I hope readers um, feel the same way. So just to give you... Um, to start with one example, um, a man named Nathan Wildenstein, Natan Wildenstein, they would have said. He's born in the mid-19th century in a small village in Alsace, an area that was passing back and forth um, between France and Germany at different times. And he um, has little or no formal schooling. Uh, he comes from a very traditional Jewish background, though probably not particularly pious. Um, he is the son and grandson of horse dealers, and he becomes a horse dealer. And that's quite a near and dear to my heart, because on the other side of the Rhineland in Germany, my own family were horse dealers, cattle dealers, grain dealers, um, and so forth. And in 1870, 71, during the Franco-Prussian War, um, uh, Nathan decides to leave Alsace and he leaves everything behind. He never returns. And um, he ends up um, having a stint in the army. And then he settles in a small town in the region of Champagne. And he does various things, dealing horses, a tailor's assistant, a textile merchant, nothing to do with art. And then this is the mid 1870s. One day a client comes to him with a picture and she says to him, can you sell this? Well, Nathan was the sort of man who thought he could sell anything to anyone. And he said, yes, but there was only one problem. He knew absolutely nothing about art. That would have deferred, um, deterred um, most of us or stopped us in those tracks, but not Nathan. And he rides up to Paris. He spends 10 days in one of the world's great museums, the Louvre. And uh, among its so-called heavenly delights, he just trains his eye or begins training his eye. And he determines that the picture is a picture from the school of Van Dyck. He goes back to the little town, um, sells the picture, and then he's gradually able to parlay this into selling what you would charitably call antiques 
but were really used goods. Mm -hmm. And then from used goods into real antiques and historic furniture and sculpture, and then into old master paintings. And what's incredible about the story is that this man without any university education, with barely any elementary education, but possessed of what seems to have been an astonishing eye and great intelligence, turns himself into one of the great connoisseurs of the day. He becomes an expert on 18th century French classical art. He and his partner establish um, one of the first European-based galleries in New York, and they begin to expand. And for Wildenstein, who was a person who was by any definition marginal, this immersion in art and this mastery of artistic traditions gives him French national credentials because there was nothing more French at the time than 18th century French classical art. And um, by the time of the around the First World War, he was so renowned an expert that the professors at the Louvre came to him to ask him to authenticate paintings. So that's one example. Um, but I can give you examples about modern dealers, too, if you want. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. I do want to hear the other stories. But just to comment on Nathan's story, it is that real like rags to riches story. Absolutely. Right? And really, like you said, joining in with whatever the cultural zeitgeist is and appreciating the art and learning from the ground up. I mean, that's something that I've always gotten from my parents is like, a you know, um, kind of a can do attitude, uh, you know, focus on education, a focus on like, if you really work hard, you can make it happen. And it's really great to see a story that kind of, you know, conceptualizes those big cultural themes that I think are a really integral part of Jewish culture. Yeah, there are two things that come together in art dealing, which were traditional strengths of Jewish culture, um, a culture in which the scholar, uh, the learned man, is deeply respected. But so is the merchant, because um, if you have it, given how few occupations were open to Jews, um, success in business, or at least being able to keep your head above water, was crucial. And art dealing is a little bit of both. Um, it's not like selling a commodity. It's not like selling herrings, where you're just selling them in the bulk and you're you're making a slight profit. And then, you know, um, Smith's herrings and Delheim's herrings, well, they're not that different. Uh, when you're dealing in art, you're 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 dealing in the symbolic order of a culture, but you're also dealing in a commodity. And um, Nathan's story is interesting because most of the stories that I tell in the book are stories about how Jews parlayed um, skills or habits of mind, contacts they acquired in business, often in ordinary businesses, grain dealing, horse dealing, selling vegetable produce, um, into art dealing, which is a field which requires very extensive knowledge of art um, gained uh, one way or the other, and very rarely gained in school. Right. It has to be gained by really being plugged into the culture, right? And what trends are emerging and what trends are classical and all that type of thing. 
Um, yeah. my, my ears perked up when you talked about, you know, Jewish culture being a scholar and a merchant culture, which I completely agree with. You know, I'm a um, psychotherapist by trade. That's my day job. And I study Carl Jung and I've done a lot of work with the archetypes. And I always express to my Jewish clients how different it is to be a scholar or merchant culture. Um, the Jungian archetype actually uses the magician, right? We're more, we're more of a magician culture where something like America or like Germany is a much more of a warrior culture, right? Where it's about kind of that can do like, I don't know, like fight or flight attitude, dominance, right? And our culture is very different. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that idea and if you would agree or disagree, but what's it like for, you know, kind of a magician, culture to, to assimilate to a warrior culture, right? Which is what I would imagine Germany was at that time and certainly became um, during the Second World War. It depends a lot exactly when you're looking. If yeah. you're looking at Germany after it's reunified by Bismarck, it certainly becomes extremely militaristic, extremely nationalistic. But one of the ways in which Jews integrated was by becoming extremely patriotic. Um, that was certainly true of my own family in the town square in Mutterstadt, the little town in the Rhineland where my family lived. Uh, there's name after name on the war memorial of my family, which were either Delheims or Lubs. We would say Loeb. And um, these are people who want to fight for the fatherland. Um, that's part of affirming um, their German identity. And um, so in that sense, it's not an either or. Um, the, the, the mercantile skills are so important because that's how people made a living. That's how they survived. And, you know, the people that I look at for the most part, um, with one or two exceptions, are people who come from relatively modest backgrounds. And many of these really are rags to riches stories. And the stories that aren't rags to riches take people from very different kind of um, endeavors. So one of the main characters is a man named Daniel um, Henry Kahnweiler, who um, became Picasso's dealer and the Cubist dealer and one of their great interpreters and champions. And he too starts out in the Rhineland, comes from a very successful commercial family. His father works for his for um, his in-laws who are uh, wealthy um, uh, bankers and merchants in London and offices all over the world. And Conweiler is stuck, as he said, by his parents in a bank. And then he's sent off to Paris. He's never very happy with his commercial pursuits, but he's pretty good at them. And in Paris, when at lunchtime, when everyone else is um, snacking, drinking, um, resting, he begins to go off to museum after museum. And one of the museums he goes to is the great Luxembourg gallery on the left bank. And there in one little room, he sees the Kaibat collection, Kaibat being one of the impressionist painters and a man who had sufficient means and generosity to collect his friend's works. And he sees these Monets and Renoirs and Cezannes and Manets and, and, um, and he doesn't know what he's looking at. He is, he's stunned by them. He doesn't know how to make sense of it. 
And um, this proved to be an enormously important lesson for him because he realized that this is the way in which a dealer is an interpreter of art. Uh, you have to teach people to see with a new eye. And eventually, after on a very circuitous route, he's able to go to Paris with a little bit of seed money from his uncles and open a gallery. And they tell him, you have a year to make this gallery work. And after that year, if you haven't made the gallery um, work um, on its own financially, you will come back to the family business. We will send you to South Africa and there will be no more discontent heard from you. Whoa. I mean, that's an insane charge. I imagine even the modern era, right, to turn a profit in the art world in a year. You know, I imagine it must take a decade or so to really start to see significant profit. Does he does he do it? How's the story? He does. He does. I mean, he, you know, it, it's. It's marginal. And the interesting thing is this is somebody who was a kind of anti-bourgeois rebel who deprecated the orderly, methodical, steady habits of his family. And and yet he learned a great deal about finance and commerce, about how markets work. Mm -hmm. And he applied those skills to dealing with his artists, with Picasso, Gris and Brock and so forth. So he does manage. That's fantastic. Yeah, I just love that story of right of Jews finding a place in a society and using skills and applying something like you said, from selling herrings to produce to horses to now art and doing this kind of more cultural brokerage. I like the way that you kind of talked about that. Um, we're going to move into our final break here. When we come back, I'd love to hear some stories about the betrayal segment um, sure. about you know kind of the Nazi seizure <laughs> of art and the unfortunate unit uh, destruction um, of that cultural belonging that was built. So um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, please hang on to the commercial break and we'll see you on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at Voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Charles Delheim. And we talked a lot about the belonging part, right? How Jews used art to get a place, right, in the culture um, and to access, you know, more of these established systems and organizations. Um, let's talk about the second part of your book, the betrayal segment. So is there a story that really conceptualizes this fall um, during the Nazi regime, I think, specifically of, of what happened? There are, I'm afraid, all too many stories, uh, many of them very poignant. So let me just give you one example. Um, in Berlin in the, the 1920s, um, the man who became the most important dealer in modern art and champion of modern art was a remarkable man named Alfred Fleschtheim, um, who had started out as a grain merchant and um, was eager uh, to... Um, move into art dealing and art collecting. And in the years before the First World War, he's able to do so. He fights um, with honor in the, sec in the First World War, but his business goes out. And then in the 1920s, he becomes roaring, becomes roaring back. And he's this kind of flamboyant, extravagant character, a man with, you know, enormous charm and intelligence, somebody who looks like he's bursting at the seams. And he becomes a symbol for the Nazis of um, Jewish um, perfidy, corruption and evil. Um, he is lambasted uh, for espousing art that was not German. Um, he was seen as one of the progenitors of what later became known as um, degenerate art um, and autode Kunst, which the Nazis um, confiscate and excoriate. And uh, Fleshtheim finds himself in a very difficult situation. Um, when the Nazis come to power, 
Um, he doesn't know whether he's safe or not, but within, within um, two and a half months, in the middle of March 1933, just three weeks before the Nazi boycott of Jewish-owned businesses is about to begin, a an exhibition that he and two friends um, organized in Dusseldorf, his town, were, was bombed. Um, no one was hurt, nothing was destroyed. Um, but, um, Fleshtime knew he was in trouble. And he ultimately, with the help of his non-Jewish, uh, quote, deputy for escape, um, he's able to leave Germany. Um, and he ends up in England. Um, and his, um, his business is liquidated. Um, his holdings are largely, uh, but not entirely gone. His wife, um, stays in, um, Berlin, uh, in large part because she was not a target and partly because, um, he didn't want all of her assets to be confiscated, um, with his. And in London, he becomes a, a notable and actually quite beloved figure in the art world. But this was a man who, as I said, had fought for his country. He became an officer, which was rare for a Jew. He was a man known for his, um, his courage and his kindness. And yet, um, having spent his life, um, trying to do things that, um, help the cause of art, including German art, um, he finds himself betrayed. And the expressionist art that becomes his specialty is seen as the epitome of everything that the Nazis hate. It's Jewish, it's Bolshevik, it's capitalist, it's communist, and most of all, it is degenerate. And he um, has great difficulty in London in the 1930s, and he dies relatively young in 1937. Um, there are many other such stories in the book about what actually happens during the Second World War to dealers, um, especially to dealers and collectors in Paris, um, who were significant figures in the art world and in their um, societies, whose um, everything they have is ransacked. And they, one of them ends up escaping with his life to America. Um, his brother stays alone in a cold gallery in the middle of central Paris, wearing an overcoat with a Jewish star, um, uh, consoling himself by reading Plato while everything else is gone. Yeah, that's a heartbreaking story. You know, and it really makes me think about what you said during the first segment um, around this being the intersection between political and cultural, right? About how they really do bleed into each other. That is really interesting. And it just makes me think about, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, like the importance of free speech or the importance of, you know, not banning books, right? Or censoring, you know, art. Um, because it sounds like from the historical record, it can so quickly become an attack on another culture, right? Or an attack on another individual that it can start by like, oh yeah, this is bad art. And then all of a sudden turn into these are bad people. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I tell my students, uh, whether they want to hear it or not, is that when you're talking about um, banning books, canceling ideas, etc., yeah. 
You are in the worst possible company. You're in the company of the Spanish Inquisition, which had an impact on your family, um, in which books are burned and people are burned and everything which doesn't conform to orthodoxy is heresy. You're in the company of Nazis who burn books from Freud and Einstein to Hemingway and even Helen Keller, um, who um, excoriate works of art, um, in some cases set them ablaze or sell them for money for the war effort or for northern old masters. And um, there's no doubt that there are times that free speech um, and allowing for free speech exposes us to horrific kind of um, statements um, made by people who are brutal and violent. But I think in the end, democracy is best served by an open exchange of ideas um, and especially by an informed citizenry that makes decisions on the basis of facts on the ground and not lasers from space. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That can reason with facts that are educated well, that know the pros and cons, Right. Rather than I think what we're seeing a rise in now and sounds like was also true, you know, in Nazi Germany of like emotional argument. Right. Or playing on fear or playing on hatred that are underneath. Um, it's again, it does always concern me that those types of arguments seem to be in, in a surgence right now. Right. They seem to be surging forward. Um, my mind goes also back to kind of like McCarthyism. Right. And that being and also kind of an anti-Semitic movement as well of canceling and blacklisting many, you know, prominent Jews in the media industry, right, in the Hollywood. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that the problem is that once you once you begin to ban books, ban art, ban people, um, this quickly degenerates into something that becomes violent in intent, if not always in execution. Absolutely. Yeah, so as we're wrapping up here, I'm curious, is there somewhere, if someone was interested in this topic, right, learning more about history or getting into the art world, uh, where would they start? I mean, certainly your book, right? But sure. where would they help to, like, learn about this and really learn from history's mistakes? Well, I think, you know, I hope they read Belonging and Betrayal. You know, it's available from Penguin Random House in audio as well as from my you know main publisher in print. I'd also recommend the books of my friend um, and colleague Jonathan Petropoulos, who's written wonderfully about the Nazis and Nazi um, policy. But I think the most important thing is to to read history, read it critically, and um, and for all of us to be willing to sit with ideas that are uncomfortable and destabilizing and disturbing and to try to understand them in a reasonable and open way. Yeah. Yeah. Did any of those ideas surface while you're doing the research for this book? Something that you had to contend with that you're like, whoa, OK, this is not what I expected to find here. Well, I, you know, strangely, when I first, one of the things that happened when I first started was that there were people who were very uncomfortable by what I use the word Jewish to have in front of anything. Um, Elaine Rosenberg, who was, um, died, um, I think a couple of years ago, she was a remarkable woman, uh, the daughter-in-law of Paul Rosenberg, this great Parisian dealer. When um, I went to see her many years ago, 
and I and she were asked to be reminded what I was working on. I said, well, I'm working on the rise and fall of Jewish art dealers and collectors. And she said, I'm not going to talk to you. I think that's a terrible thing to do. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of back and forth. And then Mrs. Rosenberg, great lady that she was, changed her mind. But I think that whenever you're singling out Jews, uh, for anything, good or bad, good or especially bad, you arouse a lot of sensitivities, very understandable uh, sensitivities, fears of anti-Semitism, fears of how um, how people are going to react, uh, fears um, that whatever your own um, hopefully good intentions that you will inadvertently do harm. And there was a lot of that. Um, from time to time. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I, I feel that within myself too, right? And, and I think some of language and the um, practices we learn from being Jewish. But yeah, this idea of we want to be able to tell our history, right? And share our culture. But we also really don't want the spotlight on us. Right. Well, I think that's the problem is that visibility bred vulnerability. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why there were many people um certainly of earlier generations who were afraid, understandably afraid of um, disclosing their identities or of acting in a way that they feared would fulfill stereotypes. And um, that's part of the self-hatred that minority groups tend to internalize from the surrounding culture in which you are swamped by these stereotypes, or if you will, um, negative archetypes. archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, none of us want to be branded. And um, my own feeling about many of these things, including identity politics, is, you know, we're not just one thing. Um, most of us are many things. Sometimes those are in conflict. Sometimes they're not related at all. And that when you begin to reduce yourself or other human beings to to one trait or one identity or one affiliation, uh, nothing good is going to happen because then if you if the other person doesn't share that trait or affiliation, then there's no way to have a conversation. There's no way to promote some kind of humane understanding of people from different backgrounds. And that would have a tragic effect on this country and I think is, I'm afraid, having a tragic effect on this country. Yeah, that's a really powerful and important message. Thank you for sharing that, right? Because I think as humans, we are multifaceted and it's really important to get to know other people and see that we have many dimensions within us. Um, So Charles, thank you so much for being on the show. This is a wonderful episode. Um, Before we wrap up here, where can people find you online? Where can people learn more about you? Sure. Um, I have to say that I'm, um, I'm not exactly a social media presence. I think I have a very small LinkedIn account. You can look at me and on Boston University website. Um, you can uh, get hold of belonging and betrayal from either, um, University of Chicago Press, Amazon, um, bookstore.org, um, et cetera. And uh, there are a variety of things that I've written that I think are accessible online. Great. So it's Google him, Charles Delheim. You see everything that he's done. Uh, Buy the book. Check it out. Um, Thank you so much again for joining. Um, If you're tuning in, we'll see you next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same. 